Well, hello and welcome to the latest episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly, the podcast where we take a look at the biggest stories happening across the global sports industry, particularly through the lens of deal making and finance. I'm your co-host, Eric Fisher, U.S. Editor for Sport Business. As always, I'm joined by Chris Russo from Fifth Generation Sports. And as you're listening to this, we now have a newly minted World Series champion, and we now turn the page to the NFL Thanksgiving games coming up and, of course, the World Cup and uh, a lot of big events to uh, close out the year here. I'm very excited about the World Cup, Eric, but even beyond what's happening on the field, there is just so much happening on the business side of sports that you would think there isn't an economic challenge going on out there, given uh, how excited people are about getting involved, investing, participating in some of these deals. So look forward to chatting about that as well. Yeah, we've got so much to unpack this week here. You are you are so true. <laughs> and uh, just looking at the uh, looking at the uh, my sleep uh, hours um, from my Fitbit, I can tell it's it's we've been running hard lately. There's a lot happening. Now we've got uh, big news in the NFL with a uh, one of the uh, marquee franchises of the league potentially coming up for sale here. A investment group uh, with a golf technology business, uh, an investor group that's one of the most extensive and impressive that I think we've ever seen and some uh, big news in the agency space as well. But first, we're going to have a conversation with a couple of the founders and uh, key executives with a new global baseball entity called Baseball United. And it's also not often that we have a Hall of Famer here on the podcast. And we've got Hall of Famer Barry Larkin and his partner, Cash Shake, coming up here on the podcast to break that down. So stay tuned for that conversation. And then Chris and I will be back on the other side to break down uh, all of this news of the week here. Stay tuned. We're very pleased to have as our guests on Sport Business Finance Weekly, Cass Shake, Chairman and Chief Executive of Startup Pro Baseball League, Baseball United, and Baseball Hall of Famer Barry Larkin, a Baseball United owner and board member. Baseball United, previously known as the United International Baseball League, is targeting the highly populous Middle East and South Asia Asia regions of the world and plans to stage an initial showcase event in the fall of 2023 in Dubai, United Arab Emirates, as a ramp up toward a more developed league-based structure across the region. Shake enters the Baseball United venture amid an extensive career in consumer packaged goods technology, and he also is currently the founder and chief executive of Ohio-based sports management and marketing agency BSB Sports, and he holds the same roles with digital content company Be Somebody. Larkin, meanwhile, enjoyed a stellar career as a shortstop for the Cincinnati Reds and was the 1995 National League Most Valuable Player and a member of the Reds' 1990 World Series champion team. Most recently, he has been active in baseball development in South America and Asia, and he previously was the manager of the Brazilian national team. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. Thanks, Thanks guys. for having us. Thanks for having us. So let's start with this recent uh, development here with the uh, the rebranding and the restructuring here, you know, and take a step back as well here. If you could sort of walk us through what the inspiration was to target these particular parts of the world with baseball and how this new structure and the new naming helps you in that mission. Sure. I can take that one, Barry, to start and you can jump in. So, well, guys, as, as you guys know, baseball, professional baseball is one of the most profitable and exciting professional sports leagues in the world but it's also one of the the few American sports that is yet to be exported to the Middle East and Asia. 
that part of the world knows soccer, knows knows European football really well. They actually know basketball and the NBA really, really well. And they're really starting to learn uh, American football, the NFL. But baseball has been this big void to a part of the world that's home to 2 billion people. And it's a part of the world that really knows bat and ball sports, because as you guys know, uh, cricket is king out there. And of those 2 billion people, a billion of them are cricket fans. And so when, when we started thinking about the opportunity to transport America's pastime and, and Americana to that part of the world, we really got excited about the, the synergies and similarities that the game of baseball has to cricket, the similar tools, the similar mindset, and the potential talent that's out there. And we started thinking about a top-down and a bottom-up approach of creating the, the first-ever professional baseball league to serve the Middle East and South Asia, and also building development programs, youth development academies to help teach people the game. That's where we started. When we started digging in out there, we spent a lot of time the last six months doing a ton of research, meeting with hundreds of people. And what we found is there's actually a lot more baseball fans out there than even we thought. Originally, we were thinking we were going to focus on converting cricket fans to baseball fans. But today, there's 53 million avid baseball fans in India today. There's 16 million people in India today that are watching the World Series at three or four in the morning because they love Major League Baseball. You know, there's almost a million avid baseball fans in the country of UAE. About 10% of the country are avid baseball fans. And to be honest with you guys, that, that was surprising to us in a good way. Because we were, we were like, man, we're going to have to do a lot of work when we get boots on the ground to get everyone to know the game. But now we know there's already a strong base. The reason the sport hasn't grown is because they haven't had folks like Barry Larkin to help teach and coach and train the coaches and, and implement an academy structure and development structure. They haven't had a professional league to aspire to that had people that looked like them, you know, with the same color skin, the same background. Um, there's no Middle Eastern or, eight or South Asian players in Major League Baseball and less than 2% Asian. So they didn't have all that. And what we're able to do with Baseball United is help bring that to that part of the world. And, and that's what we're really excited about. Barry. Barry yeah, Barry, Barry, what, what attracted you, Barry, to Baseball United? And as importantly, what is going to be your role going forward in the organization? Obviously, you're, you're an owner, but how much more involved are you going to be in this in this opportunity? Well, I'm going to be very involved in the opportunity as far as uh, strategy for the entire organization. And most importantly, my real true passion is the development of players in this area. The reason I was attracted to this is because I went over as part of a government program called Sports United to India in 2012-2013. And I noticed that there were a tremendous amount of athletes over there. However, they were cricket players or some other sport other than baseball. There was a lot of enthusiasm at the time for this government uh, project in 2013. And actually, the two guys that did get signed for the million-dollar arm, I'm not sure if you guys saw that, the million-dollar arm, the two kids from India actually, I'm told, participated in some of the programs that we did over there, the clinics, the clinics that we ran. So. I'm excited because of my propensity for development. I love it. 
done it in many, many different countries. I'm excited and was also surprised about the existing support that's over there, the existing fans that are over there. So all of it combined together just created a great opportunity for me. And I thought this would be something to continue to grow the sport of baseball globally. So, Cash, I mentioned the uh, showcase that you've got planned in Dubai for next fall. But looking beyond that in 2024 and beyond, what does the the league structure look like in terms of number of franchises, where they're going to be and so forth? Yeah, uh, great question, Eric. I mean, one, we're really excited about the showcase because it's not just a showcase for the game of baseball, but it's a showcase of talent um, from we've got players from. 35 different countries that are going to make up our initial rosters of our first four franchises. So it's going to be exciting for them to have a place to play at a professional level. And it's also a showcase of those franchises because right now our league will own the initial six to eight franchises. We're not selling them just yet. So this time next year in Dubai, potential owners are going to get a sense and a feel for, you know, what a professional baseball team can look like out there, which is pretty cool. Our first four uh, franchises, we ha- we haven't announced yet the specific team names. We're going to be doing that soon. They'll probably won't be one uh, from the UAE. They'll probably be one from India, probably one from Pakistan. And the other one will be another country from the GCC region. And the GCC is basically Saudi, Qatar, Kuwait, and the, the whole region around the Arabian Peninsula. There's so much exciting things happening in that part of the world. Obviously, the World Cup is about to start in a couple of weeks down in in Qatar. We've had great conversations with leadership and government over there. We know that they're excited about baseball as well. Um, So all that's going to be happening from now up until a year from now with the showcase. And then our plan for 2024 is actually to have two seasons, a 40-game season in the first part of the year of 2024, January and February, and then a 60-game season in November and December. We're purposely staying out of the Major League Baseball uh, window because we want to be respectful to to our partners at Major League Baseball. But what we're excited about is those two seasons, when we launched the first one, our thought is our, our current plan is to have six franchises playing in it. And then later in the year of 2024, we'll have eight franchises. And after that time, we'll be looking to to sell some of the teams and expand, et cetera, from there. But for us, really, the showcase is going to be a great proof of concept. It's going to be a great opportunity for fans in Dubai to come out and watch professional baseball at a beautiful stadium, Dubai International Stadium. And then the league in 2024 is when it's going to get uh, even more exciting. Barry, you talked a little bit about developing the game, developing young players, and I'm sure that's going to be a big part of the strategy for fan engagement. But are there other things you're going to be doing in these markets? Does Is social media going to be important? Are local influencers, local media relationships? How do you think about the totality of getting fans engaged in baseball in these countries? Yeah, Chris, that, that's a great question as well. Yes, all of that. We've done a lot of diligence as far as figuring out what the dynamic is of the fan base and the demographic of the fan base. You know, the average age of a major league baseball fan is 57 years old. Uh, The average age of a cricketer is much younger. I think it's 34 years old. And so the attention span of the younger generation is much shorter. And so we are in the process of 
changing the game, honoring the game of baseball, but changing the game to give the fan a greater experience. Uh, we're going to do in-game things that I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if we're quite ready to, to share everything. We want to have that big bang when we come out about how we're going to change the game. Uh, but there is going to be great fan interaction. We are going to have kind of create a carnival type of atmosphere relative to the game as, a, uh, as opposed to what you see at a Major League Baseball game. So we're, we're going to be very proactive as far as making it a engaging fans and making it a very cool, fun, quick, crisp experience. That's the games. But I spoke about development uh, while you asked the question about social media. Yes, what we plan on doing is we plan on profiling certain individuals and telling their stories. We've already spoken to some major sports manufacturers that shared with us their interest in players. And so what we plan to do is to profile and highlight players, tell their stories, and engage into the culture. The way that we're going to engage into the culture different than other organizations is we're going to actually create opportunities for people through the game of baseball other than just baseball players. The idea is to have people understand and appreciate the game of baseball and see it as yet another opportunity for them to continue in their pursuit of whatever interest that they have. We're challenging, we're going to be challenging cultures, communities in this way. Take the time to learn the game of baseball and learn, and you don't have to be just a baseball player, but learn that there are so many different opportunities if you take the time to learn the game of baseball that you can potentially pursue. You know, obviously there's the analytics in the game. So analysts, right? There's the medical side as well. So physical therapists, right? Someone has to officiate the game. So we plan on using this opportunity and this platform in a philanthropic way, as well as just an opportunity to create players and have them have a chance to go out and play because the reality of it is that there aren't any players at this particular time that are major league baseball ready. If they, if there was, they'd be in the major leagues right now, obviously. Right. So we're going to, as Cash said, we're going to have that top to bottom and bottom up approach. That bottom up approach is something I think it's only defined by our creativity. And I'm really excited about making contributions to the game of baseball relative to what I just shared with you. Yeah. And there's one thing to build on that guys that that Barry said, I think is so important is the stories that we're going to be telling of the players in our league and to give you an idea of the opportunity that that creates for these, these players, Mike Trout, as we know, one of the best baseball players of our generation has 2 million Instagram followers. Barack Coley, who's basically the, the Mike Trout of cricket has 220 million Instagram followers, literally a hundred times bigger. And that's the opportunity that we have from a social media standpoint and a fan engagement standpoint in that market. The cricket players that come off the bench on the Indian national team have 5 million Instagram followers. So when we talk to players and we say, look, you've been playing, you played a little bit at the double A level, played at AAA, you're playing indie ball, you're playing in Australian professional league, wherever you're playing, 
Now you get a chance to come in and be one of the heroes for these young kids in India and in Pakistan to look up to. And you get exposed to a market of, of countries that is 2 billion people that are sports crazed fans. It's an awesome opportunity because we know we're going to be creating, helping them create their brands, players create their brands for that part of the world. And it's also an awesome, awesome opportunity with, with sponsors, because if you think about it, it's a whole new white space for baseball manufacturers, baseball equipment makers, et cetera, et cetera, to start integrating into that market. Um, so it's pretty cool. Cash, as you well know, these are sort of boom times right now in terms of emerging leagues to be able to raise capital. And we've had big fundraisers this year for the WNBA, Athletes Unlimited, the Premier Lacrosse League, the list sort of goes on and on. As you go through this development, what does a potential fundraising pathway look like? And you mentioned potential owners and so forth. In terms of continuing to have capital and runway, what does the plan look like? Yeah, you know, we, we feel very grateful and blessed because we're in a great spot from a financial standpoint and from an initial capital standpoint to do everything that we need to do to prove this model out. We are we are still raising money because, as you guys know and can imagine, you know, it does take a good amount of capital to build a professional sports league from scratch. We're doing um, kind of an exclusive invite only round of fundraising right now that will last for the next 30 to 60 days. And really, that exclusivity is is really focused on people that know the game, that are passionate about the game, to understand the business. Because what we're we're looking to do, and people that are good people and that have share the values that we have, we're focused on bringing folks like that on because we know this is a long journey that we want to be sharing with with people that 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 share that mindset. So we're actively raising that next round, and we hope to have some pretty cool things to announce. Uh, towards the end of the year, not just the dollars, which are important, but the type of people, baseball people, um, great business, sports business people that are going to be joining our team as well. To that point, to that point, sorry, Chris, to cut you off, but to that point, I think it's also important to point out the fact that uh, we're looking for diversity Mm -hmm. as far as uh, our entire uh, group from, from, the fact that we are a minority-owned league at this particular point, but I think it's really important for us to open up this, much different than other baseball organizations that are out there. Uh, diversity is, you know, it is, it's, it's obvious in some of the things that Major League Baseball uh, is doing. But, you know, we look forward to having women in ownership opportunities, obviously minorities in ownership opportunities. That is one of our, our our foundational pieces. That's something that's very important and something that uh, I think will be very unique about our league. One of your key partners, I believe, is Mariano Rivera. Curious as to what his role within the organization is. And also, as you think about adding, whether they be partners, strategic advisors, et cetera, how important is it to have more actually former MLB players like like yourself, Barry, as part of the, as part of the mix. Well, Mariano and I have spoken about uh, player development. He's hugely involved in player development. Uh, matter of fact, back in 2013, when I was managing uh, Brazil and we beat Team Panama, 
He was not very happy about that. <laughs> well, he got his revenge because they advanced and they'll be playing and we are no longer uh, participating in the WBC. But it's very important uh, to have people that have experience and appreciate the game. But more importantly, it's more important to have people that understand on how to use the platform that we all have to move the needle. You know, Mariano and I are very unique in the fact that we're both owners and we're both Hall of Famers. I, I don't know if that exists anywhere else in the world. But in addition to that, we're both humble and we both use our platform to make it better for other folks. So, uh, as I said, I, I think we are only restricted with our own imagination and our own creativity as far as what we can do. Because Cash said, it is a, it's a blank sheet at this particular time for us to go over and, and share what we know about the game. But more importantly, be able to forecast and anticipate the reaction to what we're going to do because of our immense uh, experience in this game of baseball. So very important to have people that understand the game. Not so much important that we have Major League Baseball players. I think it's more important that we have the type of people that want to use their platform in a positive way to make it better for other folks. Now, Cash, building off of Barry's point here, we've sort of circled around here a little bit about Major League Baseball as an organization. As this moves forward, what kind of relationship have you been able to have or would you like to have uh, with the league going forward? You know, thus far, we've had a great relationship, great communication with Major League Baseball. As Barry mentioned, we've got two Hall of Famers on our on our team, so that helps quite a bit. Just them being involved in the credibility that they bring has really um, opened up a lot of pathways and doors for partnership between our league and Major League Baseball. We're excited to continue those conversations. If you think about it, we're also a bit of a learning lab for, for MLB. There's a lot of things that we're going to be able to do with our league that um, they may or may not be able to do in the short and or midterm, whether it's game changes like uh, Barry referenced, rule changes, uh, playing around with fan engagement, fan experience. Those are a lot, a lot of learnings that we can share back with Major League Baseball. We know MLB is the gold standard and we respect it as such, but we also know that there's a there's a big need in that part of the world and a big desire for, for baseball that we can help bring. You know, the other thing to build on what Barry was saying is, you know, just to kind of speak more about um, Barry and Mariano, we really got lucky because not only are they two Hall of Famers with legendary careers, they're just so passionate about developing the game at the grassroots level of player development, youth development, et cetera. And they're also very passionate about doing things the right way and winning the right way. And I think that mentality is what's really pervaded throughout our whole organization. And, and I've been floored by how many former Major League Baseball players, even current players that are messaging us. Barry, I got to tell you about two more that messaged me today that want to be involved in the league, and and which is awesome. What's, what's also great is Barry and Mariano have set the bar so high they're like for for folks to get involved, they have to have a level of 
integrity, obviously business acumen, and also a, a clear passion and desire to grow the game. And if they do, then we know they're going to be great assets to our team. But man, we've had so many people. And for me, I'll be honest with you, I'm a kid in a candy store. I'm, I've loved baseball my whole life. And I'll get a message from somebody and be like, dude, I can't believe he messaged us, you know, and I got I got a stack of Barry Larkin baseball cards behind me, you know, from that I collected growing up. So it's just such an honor and such a blessing to be able to do this with great people. To be clear on the MLB front, though, it sounds like dialogue, but no formal structural relationship as yet. That's right. That's right. Let me, Eric, that that is a great point. Um, You know, I'll say this because I do have a personal relationship with Rob. When I was involved in the Field of Dreams game, uh, Rob came up to me and said that he's aware of the fact that Mariano and I have this venture going on and he wants to speak to us. So we do have a meeting planned with Rob after the World Series in New York before we actually go over to Dubai. I think this relationship is going to be fantastic. Uh, My relationship with Rob in Major League Baseball is fantastic. I work for the Cincinnati Reds, and I know Mariano does some stuff as well. I think the important thing is that this is not seen as a threat, right? This isn't seen as, and this is all about baseball being the crown jewel and this being another opportunity for Major League Baseball to expand the game of baseball because that is in their mission statement. Barry, how about uh, the MLBPA and perhaps even one team partners? Have you had dialogue with those organizations and do you think potentially there are some strategic relationships there as well as with the league? I've talked to some individual players themselves that are currently playing, but nothing with Tony Clark and the Players Association, not not at this particular point. And then, Cash, we we talked a little bit before about some of the countries that you're targeting and the franchise rollout and such. Beyond some of the, you know, obviously you're going to start in, in UAE, India, Pakistan, but as you sort of think about the region, what are some of the other areas that you think are particularly primed to be? you know, perhaps diamonds in the rough here in terms of a market opportunity? Well, we mentioned a couple, right? We, um, Saudi Arabia has a great baseball infrastructure. Actually, I lived there when I was in second and third grade because my dad worked for an oil company uh, called Aramco that was working out there. And I played uh, Little League Baseball in Saudi. So I know from a long time that they love the game of baseball out there. Um, Qatar, Bahrain. Kuwait, they're all around that area. They're all hungry for baseball. There's a lot of, there's little leagues and there's federations that are either formed or being formed, baseball federations that are part of the WBSC that are in that part of the world. There's actually over 200 countries, 205 countries that play baseball that are part of the WBSC, which is the governing body of baseball um, internationally for amateur baseball. 10 or 15 countries We like to call them the forgotten countries of baseball because they don't have support. They don't have resources. Nobody really reaches out to them. There's no professional leagues that serve them. And those are the countries that we're really focused on. And in the Middle East and South Asia, you've got a huge, huge pocket of active federations that want to help grow the game. Um, We're actually partnering and sponsoring with the WBSC, something called the West Asia Cup that's happening next month in Islamabad, Pakistan, which is an official qualifying event where the winner goes to the Asia Cup. And then that winner advances and all all leads to the World Baseball Classic, which you guys know is, is, is coming up in March. And there's subsequent events that happen after that. 
But in that West Asia Cup, you got Pakistan and India, but you also have Bangladesh. You also have Sri Lanka. You also have Palestine. So there's all these countries that are playing baseball that never had the opportunity or access to do something like this. And that's what we're really excited about helping to bring. Just to follow on that point, though, some of these areas that we're talking about are not always the most stable from a geopolitical perspective. To what degree does that potentially impact the business plan? You know what? That's a big part of it. <laughs> that's a big part of it. You know, and, and and to be honest with you, I didn't know how big a part of it was until I went out there. And I realized, you know, this is as much politics or political relations and government relations as business and it's been a you know a great learning experience for for myself in particular. I know for our team, I worked out in that part of the world for Procter and Gamble for for several years. I understand the Middle East and South Asia very well. My mom was born in Pakistan. My dad was born in India. Um, I was born in Texas, but you know I understand that part of the world. But what we're trying to do, um, it does c- cut across government lines, political lines, things like that. And that's one of the reasons why the UAE was one of the was the place we started because they're very, very pro-sport. They're very, very progressive in their, their policies and their government. They, they're very big on diversity. Um, the, the mother of the country in the UAE has created a whole program for women in sports and women in business. And they're very open to American you know, ideas and concepts and, and music and sports entertainment. So the UAE has been a great, great place for us. India has been uh, is going to be another great place where they're open to a lot of things we're doing. And the other countries, as we learn and we grow, the main thing that we say is we're an American company. You know, we're an American company and we're not just exporting American America's pastime, but American values. And that's the way that we're going to be in the way we're going to operate. And if countries and people want to embrace that, then we're excited to partner with them. If they don't, then we probably won't. Eric, this is the, and, and, you know, just to continue on the point that Cass just made, you know, we are offering opportunities for baseball Americana. However, we are integrating ourselves through our grassroots efforts into the culture and the communities of these countries that we go to. You know, we're not just saying here, we're bringing a product to you, come support this product. What we're saying is, we're bringing baseball to you. Take the time to learn. And I think this is hugely important. I know I said it earlier. Take the time to learn the sport of baseball to see if baseball can create an opportunity for you, albeit that you're not a baseball player. So we plan on through some of our uh, charitable organizations that we're doing work with, where philanthropy is a huge part of this. And that's political in itself. But it's it's engaging because we're looking to make an impact into the communities. We're not just importing a game of baseball. We're importing opportunity to be involved if you take the time to learn and use baseball as a, as an, a venue to get to where you would like to be in life. And many times what we've noticed is the government influence that is so prominent in that part of the world if we have the right connections and people participate in baseball, then they themselves put themselves in line for government jobs, which they would not have if they did not participate in certain government-sponsored programs. So that's it's a huge undertaking for us as far as how we're positioning ourselves 
uh, in this part of the world. We are saying, yes, here's baseball, but we're also saying, but use this game of baseball as a, as an opportunity for you to create opportunities for yourself. Yeah. Great point, Barry. And, and in the building that they actually, especially India, Pakistan, if you play a government sanctioned sport, and most of those are sports that are connected to the Olympics because baseball is an Olympic sport. Cricket is actually not an Olympic sport. Then you get a special certification. And that certification gives you a pathway to, as Barry mentioned, government jobs, higher education, and different opportunities that you wouldn't get if you didn't have that. So it's a huge, huge uh, ecosystem that we're able to build by just bringing the game of baseball and integrating with the local communities and governments, as Barry mentioned, it's pretty, it's a huge part of what we're doing. Well, Barry, you, you guys have both mentioned the word huge, and it certainly is a huge opportunity, but in some ways that also creates a challenge from a resource perspective, because you're talking about so many different countries. The mission is just not on the field. It's social opportunities. It's other kinds of things that that, that you hope to accomplish. So how do you get to the point where you say, okay, we've got all these great things going on, but these are the three things we really need to get done this year. How do you focus and, wh- and what does that focus look like for the next 12 months for you guys? Well, we're, we, we have a very good team. And, and, you know, I think, you know, that is, that is a great question, Chris, because it could be a huge undertaking and, and we could be overwhelmed. However, this isn't our first rodeo. We've done this before. Mariano has done it in Panama. I have academies and built and sold academies have done it domestically as well as internationally. And this man that you're looking at, Cash, right here, is uh, he's a phenom. And his organization, I'll let you, him speak about that, has done incredible things internationally as well as domestically as well. So I think it's the the answer is we do have short term goals and pillars and we are very focused on those. Uh, eventually, what we want to do is we want to branch out and offer opportunities. Not we're talking baseball at this particular time, but you know there's softball. So there's women. There's women in baseball. I mentioned that we want diversity. We want women to come out and play. If they're good enough to play in this league, we want them to play. Right. I'm, I worked with Melissa Mayu, and you know she. I don't know if you guys know who she is, but she's a baseball player from France and she's worked. I worked with her through many of my major league baseball international programs uh, in Europe. Really, really good baseball player. However, at some particular point, the maturity of the male athlete just, just it just it just goes off the charts as far as, you know, the development. So but if women can play then we want them to play. So we're going to look at expanding into softball and doing other things. However, the short-term goals are very defined and we are very focused and it is, it can be overwhelming, but I think because of the strength of our organization and the focus that we can, it's pretty easy to stay on task. Well, clearly a lot happening in and around the United Baseball League or or Baseball United, rather, my mistake, sorry. A lot happening around Baseball United. We're going to continue to track that across all the sport business platforms. Uh, But for now, we want to thank Cash Shake and Barry Larkin from the organization for spending this time with us. Thanks Thanks for having us, guys. Thank you.
We are back on Sport Business Finance Weekly, and we want to thank Cash Shake and Barry Larkin again from Baseball United for spending that time with us. And turning our attention now to the news of the week, uh, boy, howdy, did we have a, a real bombshell this week. Uh, Dan Tanya Snyder, the owners of the NFL's Washington Commanders, and, and Dan Snyder in particular, as we've discussed many times here on the podcast, he's been under fire for quite some time here surrounding all the issues with this franchise not only do we have uh the whole name change process from the team's former identity as the washington redskins and then washington football team but of course there's been this whole situation around the toxic workplace environment under snyder uh that's been occurring he's been fined by the league there's investigations going on by the the league itself the u.s house of representatives and amid all this turmoil we now have news that the Snyders have retained Bank of America Securities to look into potential equity transactions surrounding the team. That could be a partial sale. That could be the whole thing. They're, they say they're keeping options, uh, all options on the table here. And just as a quick moment of personal indulgence here, this is sort of a real full circle moment for me because after Jack Kent Cook died, the former owner of the Redskins died in 1997. This was a, you know, real jumping off point for me in, in covering sports business. And now, uh, it, which ultimately led to Snyder buying the team in, in 1999. And now a uh, quarter century uh, post Cook's death, we've come full circle and this team looks to be on the block here again. Uh, the Snyder deal was a North American record at the time, 800 million. Looks poised very much to set another North American team sale record with a figure that's going to start at at least $5 billion and, and maybe much more than that here. But, uh, you know, just given that it's an NFL team in the nation's capital, access to power, all those sorts of things. It was a big deal a generation ago, and it's going to be a big deal again. Well, Eric, assuming that the deal will happen, again, there's still some question mark about that. You noticed the statement that was released said that they've hired B of A to consider potential transactions. That's a little bit of a different statement than Sarver's statement, who kind of right. came out and said, I'm seeking buyers. So there is some question about what kind of transaction will happen here. Will it be a full sale? Would it be a LP transaction? Would it be, you know, go to the market, test it and decide not to sell? We really don't know. And they've they've certainly left their options open. But this is certainly a big change from the owners meeting a couple of weeks ago where where the commander said, look, they're not going to sell the team and that's just the way it's going to be. And so there, there, a lot must have happened behind the scenes over the past couple of weeks to uh, to, to create that change of heart. Yeah, there was a real defiance there. And that statement that you referenced was in response to Jim Ursay, the owner of the Indianapolis Colts, saying that he saw merit in, in having Snyder forced out as the uh, owner of the commanders. And that obviously prompted this angry statement. And that was the first time that we had really seen public resistance to Snyder continuing from within NFL ownership. But yeah, there's a lot of unanswered questions here in terms of, again, where this might go. Ver partial versus full or maybe still nothing at all but it does also sort of raise the question what don't we know about this uh particularly this league investigation that uh roger goodell has commissioned mary joe white the former uh, head of the u.s securities and exchange commission to look into all of these issues um you know we're expecting some news on that probe fairly soon you know and and is there something coming out there that it's going to make it untenable for Dan and Tanya Snyder to continue here? It's a really fascinating situation. We don't know the answers on that, Eric. There's also, as you noted, a congressional investigation, but 
the Congress may change parties here over the next right. several weeks, and that could have an implication on it. We don't know. Particularly on the House side. Yep. And we don't know kind of behind the scenes what other owners have been saying to Dan in terms of their support or lack thereof in terms of his continued involvement. So there may have been conversations that happened after the owners meeting, after a number of the owners got together and had info. Again, we don't know the answer to all of that. But again, I would point out that there really are, I, I would say, three different paths here. One, that the team gets sold, you know, full stop. Two, there's some kind of sale of, of an LP stake. And maybe there's a new partner that's brought into the mix that can basically say, look, we're going to clean things up. Things are going to be fine. I'm I'm Dan's partner. We're going to we're going to make it good. Or three, you know, there could be the notion that they go out there, they don't find what they want from a pricing standpoint, or things potentially cool down on some of these investigations and some of the media, and perhaps they decide to to keep the team. So they've kept all those options open. And regardless of which of those paths, and I think you make a great point because this could go a lot of different ways, but regardless of which one of those paths that the franchise ultimately heads down, there needs to be some substantive change, like really transformative change surrounding this team because what they've done so far with the name change and so forth has not worked. You've got a situation even sort of putting uh, the this whole sort of workplace culture stuff and all the issues around female employees and such, just sort of putting that off to the side for a moment. This team is just not performing well, certainly not on the field, but, uh, you know, even more so off the field. Again, referencing back to where we were a generation ago when Snyder came in, that this was really one of the hallowed brands of the league, three Super Bowl titles, uh, you know, one of the highest uh, – franchise values in the league, uh, one of the best attendances in the league, you know, really one of these marquee brands. And now they're really at the bottom of attendance. They're, they're building, which is really in poor shape now, is overrun by uh, away fans every week. They're having all sorts of issues getting a new stadium uh, project going. And, you know, whether it be Snyder, Snyder with a partner or somebody else entirely, this business needs to be overhauled. It certainly seems that way, Eric. And the stadium you bring up, which is a good point, they are trying to get a new stadium, have been trying to get a new stadium. Years. And and that always involves uh, issues surrounding cooperation with local governments and other public bodies. And when you're facing some of the challenges that the club is today, it makes those kind of stadium projects even more difficult. And that is something that is not uh, that look, you know, does not make the other owners look favorably on what's happening in Washington, but sort of, you know, moving this forward a bit, when you think about where this could go in terms of a sale, I, you know, your opening point about this potentially being a record number, if this club is all, I think that makes a lot of sense. I think you could see north of $5 billion you would see this potentially being sold for more than the Broncos. It's a big market. And the Broncos was 4.65, just for reference here. Yeah. And, 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 you know, I mean, there's, again, stories being published that maybe Jeff Bezos is interested. There certainly will be others. And so, again, if this ultimately does result in a sale, it will be like nothing we've seen in the sports industry before in terms of the size of the check that, that will be written here. Oh, yeah. And there's a lot of folks already sort of circling around that, you know, we had this announcement the other day that they've hired B of A. And again, we don't know whether it's full, partial, or maybe just nothing at all. And this is just kind of kicking the tires, you know, but we've got Jeff Bezos' name out there. We've got Byron Allen, uh, the media mogul, who was a uh, very serious bidder for the Broncos, a number of other folks. Again, NFL in Washington, it's a very powerful combination, and that's what makes this current business performance such a tragedy that 
it should be where we were a year uh, a generation ago and could be again uh but it just needs to be in a very different structure yeah well that i mean having said all of that eric with the business performance and the performance on the field it still is going to be an enormous deal and that's oh, yeah. to the power of the nfl overall and even as much as you know you might have some missteps in the business or on the field. The franchise value has increased enormously for Dan. So regardless, he's he if he sells, he's going to wind up with a huge windfall and a huge profit here. I would point out about the Bezos uh, potential buying situation because of his you know ongoing at least ownership stake in Amazon. It will be interesting to see whether the NFL's current deal with Amazon and or whether Amazon would become a Sunday ticket. Uh, bitter, whether those things ultimately can can live together, or as in the case of Michael Rubin with Fanatics in the NBA, Michael had to take a step back yep. from his NBA role because his companies were in such uh, intertwined businesses with the league. So that's that's one thing to keep an eye on as you think about bidders here. Yeah, and, and these, you know, we're we're playing so you know far above here without a net, so to speak. That these are great points you big uh, bring up, but these are not sort of minor little decisions. That you've got a team that's going to go for maybe five or six billion dollars. You've got a Sunday ticket package that's going to be worth you know easily north of a billion dollars, maybe two billion dollars a year. I mean, these are big decisions with massive ramifications. Yeah, and there aren't you know when it comes to a five or six billion dollar purchase price, and given that. There's a limit to the amount of debt you can put on these teams and the fact that the NFL does not allow these private equity firms to be investors. You know, you're starting to limit the number of people who actually have the net worth and the liquidity to buy these teams. And we saw, you know, we saw in the, in the Broncos case, there were a few uh, bidders that appeared to be getting close to the finish line until Walton got it. So there yep. will be a few bidders, but at some point too, uh, you reach a point where there's only so many people that can afford a team and it does right. become a big decision at that point. So much more to come on this. Again, this is just going to be such a fascinating thing to see unfold. So much more to come on that. But shifting from one big deal to another, we've talked a little bit about tomorrow's sports. This is a golf technology venture formed by Tiger Woods, Rory McIlroy, and uh, Mike McCarley, former executive with NBC Sports. They've brought in an investor group that, you know, really, we've never seen anything like this. We've talked just in the last few weeks about, you know, a lot of athlete investors and, and things that LeBron James is doing Kevin Durant and the like. Well, the, you know the boldface names up and down this new uh, uh, investor sheet for uh, tomorrow sports. It, it just amazing. I mean, I can't even name them all, but just to throw out a few names: uh, Steph Curry, Serena Williams, Shohei Otani, uh, John Henry from Fenway Sports Group, David Blitzer, who we've talked a lot about here. Justin Timberlake, the music star. I mean, the the list goes on and on. And then, you know, so there's a whole pool of athlete investors, team owner investors, institutional investors. And, you know, some of this, of course, is to drive interest in uh, the overall uh, property. And we're talking about it, obviously, but more so that, you know, a lot of these folks have opportunities put in front of them all the time. And they're all uniformly here saying that this tomorrow sports is something they want to get behind. Yeah, this is really an amazing roster of investors. And if you notice the press release that they put out, the individual or athlete investors were the headline. The second headline was the institutional investors. So this is unusual in that regard, where they're really leading with uh, all of these prominent names that have been brought to the table. Uh, I do wonder, I mean, how much time it took them to effectively talk to all these people. All of these people have wealth managers, family offices. I mean, this yep. was a Herculean task 
to get all of these folks in. And I think the strategy, you know, I guess is ultimately now you've got a lot of people who are going to be promoting the tomorrow initiatives. You've got a lot of people that are going to be uh, leveraging resources and contacts and relationships to help you. Uh, there is a, a herding cats kind of uh, challenge that probably is here for the management of, of tomorrow golf, but it does, it is a very different strategy than most other uh, kind of emerging businesses. And we'll, we'll, we'll look forward to seeing how it plays out. Yeah, but this is also something we're having Tiger and Rory at the tip of the spear that, you know, not to sort of throw Mike or any of the executives involved here under the bus here, but, you know, when Tiger Woods shows up on your cell phone, you know, incoming call, it just, it hits different. Yeah. And Tiger is, as I understand it, his his venture firm is putting in money. So they're putting their own skin in the game on this as well. They started this with an existing or, a, or you know beginning relationship with the PGA Tour for their new league, the TGL, which is going to be yep. uh, primetime uh, programming uh, starting in 2024. So it's not like they're starting from scratch. So this is, is something that, uh, as far as an initiative that has a lot of momentum, again, they're going to have to deliver on actual performance and, and properties, but, but it's a, a really good start. Amazing. And then I, I think one of these things, again, because there's so many different people, and obviously each of these individual folks have tiny, tiny slices of this, where are we going to be six months or a year from now? do they all sort of double down in another another round do some of them you know take an opportunity for an exit here at various stages here that again with you know you bring up the herding cats uh, uh metaphor before you know how that collective kind of stays together particularly over the next 6 12 18 months it's going to be fascinating to see yeah I, I, that will be something to watch eric so what will be interesting to watch is where the tomorrow folks make their next bets from an initiative standpoint. They clearly started in in golf, but yep. it, it seems like they've left themselves the room to do initiatives in other sports. The fact that they have investors now and, and, and prominent athletes from a bunch of different sports and parts of the industry, it'll be interesting to, to me to see whether they stay in the golf lane, the experiential lane, whether they branch out from that. They talk about tech and the future of the sport being a, a key part of it, but there's lots of different directions that could take. And this gets right back to the concept that we were talking about with DJ Johnson in last week's episode, that this whole notion of you know reconstituted versions of traditional sports and snackable concepts concepts and more technology-driven concepts and, and taking sports that we're all familiar with and representing them in a whole new way. And that's clearly what this TGL initiative is. And then you could certainly see that through line extended in the case of tomorrow here to other sports. Yeah, and I, it seems like they want to be a hold co not a fund so it, it seems to right. me that they are not looking to dole out a million two million dollars in a bunch of of businesses and see how it goes it looks like they are going to make some bets on some initiatives that they are going to help run they are going to manage and so it's a little bit different model than all of the venture funds we talk about eric on this podcast whereas these guys seem to be more hands-on and now they Operators. are going to be able to yeah, be, be leveraging some real influencers in these different sports to help execute and, and, and build these businesses. Yeah. And as those operations take forth, take uh, take shape and go forth here that's where you know all of these different uh at particularly the athletes that you get a serena williams or a steph curry or whoever to show up at your first competition of fill in the blank competition that you've created here 
that has immense value, particularly from a social media standpoint. Yeah, I think, Eric, in some of that, and I don't remember the exact numbers, but if you added up the social following of all of these athletes, it's in the hundreds of millions of it's followers. About half a billion. Half a billion, right? And and so, again, think about the value of that when you're launching TGL. We've got the first uh, episode on Monday night, and you know, you've got that kind of exposure. It's really valuable, uh, assuming you can get everybody to cooperate and, and participate. No doubt. Much more to come on that front as well. Really fascinating situation that they developed there. Turning our attention now to the uh, world of agencies, we talked a lot about this, that there's a real arms race going on around these major agencies and all sort of bringing on additional funding, additional assets to really sort of compete uh, on a bigger scale and on the global stage. And this has happened yet again here that Wasserman, one of the big agencies uh, based here in the United States, They've done a deal where they've taken on strategic investment from Providence Equity, and in this new recapitalization, uh, Redbird Capital Partners and Madrone Capital Partners, they're out, but Providence Equity is in, and this is a real move here, again, to really scale up on, on a global level. You've got a lot of the other big players, Endeavor, CAA, Octagon, and so forth, that are really competing internationally, and very much the same sort of through line here with Wasserman. Yeah, we've seen in the last couple of years, Eric, uh, private equity get a lot more involved in these agencies. Excel took money from Shamrock. UTA took money from EQT, a private equity firm. HIG bought Sport5. You know, For a long time, TPG has been involved with CAA. We had Mike Levine on the podcast yep. several weeks ago. So private equity is really getting involved in these businesses. And I think in part because these agencies are working to morph beyond just talent representation and sponsorship sales. Many of them are looking to produce content. They're looking to own properties. They're Executive looking to search. Yeah, exactly. They're looking to broaden the portfolio of what they do and having the capital can be very helpful. Yeah. And that's, uh, again, that, that sort of, uh, broad capability and sort of almost the Swiss army knife of uh, of functions here that a lot of these agencies, that's really important because you can go into a territory, go in with a property and, and these agencies can then say, I can do A, B, C, D, and E for you. And then it, it really becomes a very compelling proposition. Yeah. And we even have now thinking about Legends, Legends has been doing a variety of services and then they've been investing in some of these emerging leagues as well. So there's yep. that investment piece that can come in, obviously, uh, on a bigger scale, Endeavor bought uh, UFC and PBR. And so we've seen a lot of that. Now, in the case of Wasserman, they've made several acquisitions over the past year, including more, most recently a company called BSE, which is yep. a sports marketing and branding agency out of Spain. But they had bought a baseball agency, Jet Sports, uh, they had bought an, another agency that did action sports and influence. So there's a variety of, of smaller acquisitions that they've made over the last 12 months. And now with additional support from Providence, we may see them doing more. And another important point is as we go forward here and speaking particularly about the international piece, you know, Casey Wasserman, who owns this, he's a key figure in the upcoming LA 28 games and, you know, sort of you know, obviously there's, you know, ethics and guardrails and everything, but, you know, this is somebody who already had a lot of contacts around the world. Those contacts are only expanding that much more through all of this Olympic work. There's a real sort of compelling, uh, you know, synergy there. Absolutely, Eric. You know, one, one other point to make about these private equity firms, 
Providence, which is the the in, incoming, uh, they've done a lot in the sports space. They they have made an investment in Soccer United Marketing and exited yep. that. Top Golf, Chime, which is an agency out of uh, the UK, Blue Star Sports. Uh, Scott Maramau, who leads a lot of their sports efforts, has been integrally involved in the industry for many years. So not a surprise to see them come in. Somewhat of a surprise to see Redbird exit after a relatively short period of time, because I believe that Redbird came in, or at least it was reported that they came in in February of 21. So this is a relatively short term for them. Madrone had been in from 2014, so not a surprise that they might exit after eight or nine years. But it is a a short turn for Redbird. But sometimes these private equity firms, like in the case of Providence, may want to have the entire kind of runway themselves as opposed to sharing control with, uh, with, with others. I think that's a great point. So you've got their goals and then Redbird on the other side, you can sort of see what they're doing in terms of sort of recapitalizing their whole scenario where they've sort of gone out of, um, you know, one team, yep. they've gone out of this, but they've sort of gone in, they've gone in in a big way on on AC Milan, done the deal with the Yankees. Fenway. They're, yeah, they're yeah, obviously yeah. part of Fenway. And so there's clearly a recalibration of their portfolio happening as well. But, but overall, I mean, again, we've talked about this numerous times with the arc doses of the world and dial and CVC. It is amazing how much more private equity involvement there is uh, in the sports space at higher levels today than even there was five years ago. It's phenomenal. And it's it's great for people who own assets because it's right. nice to have buyers and investors. So again, it's always tough at the earlier stages to raise money. But once you build a successful business in sports, there are usually lots of buyers or investors around the table. Well, certainly much more to come on that front, both from the investment side and the agency side. But as we close uh, another episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly, as always, we like to take a look elsewhere in the space and see what else is catching our eye. Chris, I will start with you. Eric, I noticed that uh, the Ottawa Senators uh, have uh, engaged an investment bank to uh, sell the club. And this is interesting, not so much just in that news, but the fact that now we have a team for sale in each of the four major leagues, potentially Ottawa, the Phoenix Suns in basketball, the Commanders in football, and the Nationals in baseball. And as you like to, to refer, this is an equinox of sorts where uh, where four teams are for sale. And this is really unusual. I can't remember a time when this has happened. Everybody complains, including those in the investment banking community and and buyers and high. Yeah, there's never any control trans. There's never control deals out there. You can't buy a team now. There are literally four that appear to be on the market, depending upon where the commanders go. And so yep. that really is uh, makes it an interesting horse race. Uh, for each of these deals. Yeah, the equity equinox, and particularly you've got two in one market there. So, you know, folks that may be looking at uh, the nationals, I mean, Ted Leonsis has been sort of, uh, sort of, mentioned as sort of the lead guy, uh, potentially in, in that race, you know, does, does the presence now of what we've talked about with the commanders, does that change the situation with the nationals or vice versa? So very interesting, but yes, an equity equinox. Um, And then relative to the senators, particularly, we don't talk about uh, People Magazine breaking news in the sports business world, but they actually had a very interesting little news break where they actually had an item about the actor Ryan Reynolds being very interested in buying the senators, if he could make that happen. And this is somebody who's obviously had great success with the uh, uh, the Wrexham Club in England. And so 
we could be seeing even more of Ryan, Ryan Reynolds in the sports business. Well, not that it, it makes it that much easier, but the, the price tag of, of this club will be, uh, I would expect a lot less than the commanders <laughs> and whether it's a, you know, a billion or a billion two, or it'll be, it'll be under a billion. It won't yeah, even and, be and, 1 billion. And, and so that may, maybe opens the doors up to more people, but still uh, a, a lot of money. And from my standpoint, uh, you know, really taking a look at the NFT space, uh, we talked a lot about that, obviously, rise and fall here. And we've had some uh, really notable turbulence in the space that Dapper Labs really kind of seen as one of the foremost entities in this space and the developer of NBA Top Shot. And they've leveraged this now to deals with the uh, National Football League, NFLPA and so forth laying off 22% of their staff and citing, you know, macroeconomic conditions, you know, the economy writ large and specifically the NFT space. And we've seen all sorts of values in and around NFTs go down, activity down, pricing way down. And there was all sorts of uh, 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 ramifications across the industry because of this, and not only future deal-making with other properties, but the sponsorship space as well, that as we've discussed at great length here, these crypto and NFT firms have you know, really sort of turned the sports sponsorship uh, world upside down over the last couple of years, and a lot of big jersey patch deals and facility naming rights and so forth. And you could reasonably expect they're not going to be big spenders in the near future, or maybe even the medium and long-term future as a result of what's going on in the turbulence of the space. And that's all happening, you know, where, you know, we've got major league baseball teams out in the market with Jersey patches right now, NHL teams and the like, and, you know, what's happening in this NFT space, uh, you know, really has uh, a lot of effects across the industry. I agree with you, Eric, and specifically relating to, let's say Dapper, so rare and autograph, which are the three big NFT companies that have focused a lot on the sports space. They all raised a lot of money yep. uh, over the last 12 to 24 months. But my sense is that they're going to need to use that cash to potentially ride out the, the crypto winter or the NFT winter or whatever it's called, and or figure out how to use that cash to reposition their businesses a bit. Maybe they move more into traditional collectibles. Maybe there's other digital businesses that that kind of surround what they do, but I can't see them spending a ton of that money on sponsorships or jersey patches given right. the imperative to to morph those businesses. Yeah, because again, it gets back to that core situation that there's a lot of interesting products and fan, different forms of fan engagement that they've developed here. But writ large, the issue is mainstreaming a lot of this and really turning this into a mass consumption kind of situation. Yeah. I, and again, I think the the big companies like Dapper and SoRare and Autograph, they do have the benefit of they've they've built brands to some degree. They do have a, a senior league relationships. They do have capital, but they do need to be focused and cautious now. And that's part of the reason you see some, some layoffs and some efficiencies, because I think they need to extend the runway to figure out the next wave of these business models. Well, much more to come on that front as well, but that's going to wrap up another episode of Sport Business Finance Weekly. For Chris Russo, I'm Eric Fisher. I thank you very much for spending this time with us. And just as a quick disclaimer, this podcast was for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial or investment advice. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week. <music>